0: Hello, and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Devine, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Martino Simsic from uh, Copper90. How are you? Hello, all right. Yeah, yeah, real good. Yeah, yeah, things are good over at Copper90. Things are going well. Listen, I mean, the majority of people who are listening to this will know who Copper90 are, but for those who don't, will you just explain what it is and what you do
1: for them? So, Copper90 is a digital football media company that was established about five years ago, six years ago now. (laughs) Um, focused on sort of telling football by the lens of supporters and everything outside the 90 minutes of football. Um, so my role specifically at Copa90 is the fan culture editor. So everything we do involving from the Derby days that Ellie Menjim does to this is about the history of football clubs to any other social contact, uh, content we might make about football supporters mm-hmm. is to kind of coordinate that relationship and make sure that obviously in a world where football supporters have traditionally felt disenfranchised, disempowered by the commercialization of football, that Copa90's relationship with those supporters continues to keep their interest at heart okay. um, over maybe the interests of commercial sponsors, which has kind of been the status quo of football yeah. since the 1980s.
0: How do you, how do, you do that? <laughs>
1: well, I mean, it's a very tricky process, right? So it's, it's, it's constantly managing these relationships and expectations of brands because yeah. it's something that's you know, become really commonplace now is if you look at the sort of rituals and activities that supporters have inside of a ground,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Lighting flares, lighting smoke, doing a big choreography—you um, know, some of the chanting that might be considered non-PC or unacceptable for a commercial sponsor. These are very problematic things that UEFA tries to ban and repress, but they're also forms of freedom of speech in an extremely democratic space, which is the curve or the popular stand of a stadium. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it, it's actually really having a direct dialogue and, and and having a voice within that stand that's expressing itself and and giving its sentiment on. Know, the kinds of messaging that's coming out. Yeah. Um, you know, Today you'll have a Sky TV advert for the City of ah, A going around Rome and its smoke billowing from behind the supporters and the players running out. If that same smoke was to be lit in the stadium, the fans would be fine, the club would ban some supporters, people would be banned from life for the stadium, mm-hmm. for what people consider their lifelong passion and their sense of community. So there's a little bit of hypocrisy there from you know the commercial sides and the way modern football is. Is acted in regards to supporters who view the full stadium as a necessary part of the entertainment piece. I mean, let's Mm. not forget that in England, you can't play on televise a match on a Saturday at 3 o'clock in order Mm. to keep stadiums full. That very same product is important for fans all over the world and all over Europe. However, the things and rituals that fans enact to sort of keep a party in the stands and keep community coming for something that isn't just 90 minutes of football, which, you know, with the modern game, we can expect certain teams to win every season... Um, the attraction, the competitivity of football is is not what maybe it used to be in, in, in an older time of football. Mm. And so that support and that enthusiasm from supporters and that sense of community becomes even more important. Um, and, you know, standing between protecting that identity, protecting that sense of community, and a football that is more and more interested on maximizing profits, putting televised matches at different times, you know, in the UK today, you have to pay almost a thousand pounds in a year in order to get a full package of the top European leagues. Mm. You know that's more than uh, a full season ticket in most first division teams in the European competitions. Yeah, you know, so it's it it's it, 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 it's really about re-reminding people of, of of these realities and these these
0: inequalities that sort of have developed themselves between supporters okay. and the commercial <laughs> modern game. There's and, a lot to unpick there. I yeah. mean, I think so. The nature of today's podcast, we we decided from sort of conversations we've had before, one of the things that might be useful to talk about is, is ultras, right? Because you're American, but you're also Italian. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a grand uh, history of ultras in Italy. I, that's where the word comes from, right? Yes. So yeah. the, origin,
1: the origin of the term ultras comes from the ultra-royalists in France, which mm-hmm. were the sort of pro-monarchists in France during the French Revolution. Um, that sort of idea and that term gets applied to ultras in Italy about 50, 51 years ago. Yeah. with the ultras groups of Tito Cucciaroli and Sampdoria and the ultras of Torino. Um, the first group to call itself an ultras group, um, not from the journalists labelling them as ultras and creating this metaphor with the ultra-royalist French and the sort of extreme passion that they were showing, was the Fossa de Leoni of Milan, who this uh, last year in 1968 marked the 50th anniversary of sort of the birth of the Italian ultras scene. Okay. However, organized fandom and the idea of ultras is something that comes before that. I mean, the, the first sort of recognized supporters group and idea of kind of ultras that has ever emerged that we can sort of look back at and trace is probably Torcida Split in right. Croatia, right. who the idea comes from in the World Cup in Brazil in the 1950s. Um, supporters come back from the Yugoslav national team, many of them Croatian from Split, or the players themselves, and they sort of start telling the supporters of Split how amazing the enthusiasm of the Brazilian torcidas is. Mm. This idea sort of gets birthed, and they begin supporting the team. And over the complicated history of Split, obviously, the, with you know, the rise of communism, they sort of close down the supporters group. And then there's the revolution within Yugoslavia. The supporters group has a reemergence. Then, when you know, Zagreb becomes the state team of Croatia, they become a rebellion against the state centralism of Zagreb. Mm-hmm. So, really, the history and Experience of the town of Split reflects kind of what it is to be an Ultras and that it's a constant sense of rebellion and a constant sense of local identity over the other. It's this, it's this extreme level of kind of local pride and patriotism, mm. which can manifest itself in different ways. Um, right. The side to me that is is the most positive and interesting is where it becomes a reflection of culture and a reflection of tradition, um, particularly when we look at modernization of football and globalization these senses of communities and these community dynamics and the yeah. way they get expressed through flag song ritual a particular dialect within a chant yeah those become really important ways of maintaining the, a tradition a connection to a local place which when your high street looks like oxford circus no matter what capital city you in you know that heightened sense of community becomes particularly important in terms right. of maintaining a sense of origin and a sense of where we've come from
0: okay let's take it back a, a little bit right because My understanding of what an ultra was before I met you (laughs) was very different, right? I'm not really involved in fan culture. People who listen to the podcast or watch the TIFO videos know that mine and Alex's interests are slightly broader, a step back from the sport, looking at stuff from there. I don't attend football games very often. I'm not part of fan groups, that sort of stuff. And my understanding of what an ultra was before I spoke to you was that it was something akin to what the English call hooligans, right? Can you give me the separation between what these two things are? Because obviously some ultras groups do engage in violence, mm-hmm. but that, it, that's not, am I right in thinking, that isn't a defining feature of what it is to be an ultra in the same way it is to be a hooligan.
1: It's not the same in that ultras groups are organized supporters groups. Hooligans yeah. from their origin, whenever you meet on a Wednesday and talk about what you're going to do, there's no flag or banner to prepare. You, you, you met with your mates, you got on a bus, you went to the other city... And, you know, you develop this reputation for violence within your own sort of subgroup. Um, the ultras tradition has always sort of emerged from a much different idea of of what you're doing. So the ultras in Italy emerged from the idea of city-states originally, you know, where, whereas football in the UK, you'd sort of had an established country and a queen and, and that idea of, of nationhood in England was um oh, good for
0: me. yeah sorry sorry everyone that's a that's Plus. a delivery for us outside you keep talking 2 seconds <laughs> right, thank you mate no no cheers thanks man
1: yeah so the i guess in their origins the the idea the idea of ultra's kind of emerged as as this uh, protection and representation of your city state so if if Italy yeah. unifies in 1862 by the 1870s you've got your first football club with Genoa, So the football teams become these representations of the local territories, which were always supposed to be federated states. Mm -hmm. Then upon the unification of Italy, there's this kind of need to maintain what those traditions are and how they're different. I mean, linguistically in Italy that exists, but it's sort of dying out. So from Naples to Milan, I can't understand somebody speaking in a group of their friends in a bar. Same way, it would be difficult for me so because to because of different
0: dialects, different slangs, that sort of thing? are
1: so broadly different. Right. Because the food and the cuisine is, is How, so distinct, you, and that's you an important to, feature.
0: Can you compare it when we have a lot of people listening from the United Kingdom, can you compare it at all to different sorts of accents across the UK, or is it, it a really, different it's, thing?
1: It's bordering, on, it's bordering on Welsh to English. Right, okay. It's it's, it's really distinctly different. I mean, you know, ling- ling- football. linguists will tell you that, you know, 80% of roots of certain words in, in certain towns in Sicily will come from Arabic. Yeah. Right. So we're talking about a country who there's always been another sort of invading power, controlling that space. And thus the dialect gets formed and they have their own kingship in that space. And, right. and it becomes a fundamental part of what it is. Yeah, As you start losing that, as, as Italy becomes more of a complete nation, this idea of football, and this idea of local representation to the stands yeah. becomes a big idea. All the rituals that get set up to that become this way of representing something and all of you are collectively together with that idea a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, within the hooligan scene in the UK, that was really never the case. It was more about representing your towns and your cities, but it was a few mates. It wasn't this sort of bigger collective group. Um, and, And I think that that really gets to the heart of where that distinction is. Now, when you look at it within the stadium, how are English stadiums built? You've got, it rains all the time on this island. You've got a big tin shed over you. And the best songs are going to come from the boys in the back. The boys in the back don't need to then coordinate with the whole stand-up front. If you go to a stand in Italy, most stadiums mm. built before the 1990 World I mean, even the 1990 World Cup, don't have roofs over them. Mm. So you need somebody in the front with a megaphone coordinating the entire audience in order to amplify a noise big enough to actually motivate the team. So it's not just that English people are louder? Not at all that English people are louder. <laughs> Just you know, it's you know, it's 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 that there's it's, these are functional structural differences, yeah. like both historically and because of the shapes of grounds and the way these sort of spaces were built have led to the being very different approaches. Now when we talk about the ideas of violence and, and when we talk about, you know, the hooligan scene and how it inspired things. The ultras movement is definitely it's 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 a it's an aggregation of two ideas. So, there's a a man named Heleno Herrera, who was the coach of Inter in the 1950s. I think you remember Inter winning the two Champions Leagues in the 1960s, I think, 63. Mm -hmm. I think we
0: actually have a video about him
1: out today. Perfect. Check it out. So, Mm. Heleno Herrera, beyond bringing all his tactical innovations, all the things he did in Italy, and how he revolutionized sort of Milan football, for sure, he also brought over this idea from the Argentinian Barra Bravas, and having open singing and chanting in the stands and saying, look, you have this tradition of hooliganism in England, and the singing that you get in the full stadium, literally the full ground, that cacophonous full singing in an English ground, how do we bring that to some of the color and some of the emotion, the trumpets and the singing and the flags and the umbrellas you see starting to emerge in grounds like Boca Juniors with La Doce at the time. That kind of brings itself together in Italy. And so you, you have, he goes to Inter, the Milan Ultras get inspired, seeing him trying to create something at Inter, some Daria even sees it, and it becomes a sort of quickly growing development. But it is this combination of cultures and ideas, and comes from the fact that Italy is in a very unique situation where you're going to take and adopt these cultures and ideas, but you're going to use them, not to where in Argentina, maybe La Boca is being defined by Boca Juniors. In England, you know, um, Newcastle has its own history and its own thing and it already has its context within England of what it means. Mm. The hooligan group that emerges out of Newcastle is really just one of the many sort of forms of kind of anti-establishmentarianism that is emerging out of England in the working class in this time period. Um, the the movement in, in Italy has the combination of both, that sort of idea of needing to build and continue representation, which people in South America really brought over, with this kind of working class frustration, post-war, rise of the 60s, you obviously have the Catholic Church being very powerful in Italy, and there's a whole series of you know political tension that begins to rise, mm-hmm. which is where we get to the kind of idea of, you know, um, and so violence within that. The first deaths in football in Italy occurred in the 1930s. You know people are fighting around football grounds all the time they become hyper masculine often a lot of drinking mm-hmm. spaces where violence occurs trying to completely paint ultras as being necessary that or the other it becomes complicated and it's it's where we get into more modern ideas of the ultra system that becomes different because if we look at even the beginning of what a derby is derby comes from you know county of Derby in England, where it's two mass groups that get in this brawl to control a territory or space, right? And then football kind of merges as an evolution of that sport. Ultras are kind of trying to harken back to the origin that football used to be, mm. right? Of who can control and take over the space via Tide football. Um, that idea originally was meant to reflect Tide football. It was a once-a-year game. It was kind of a tag thing with time and as the relationships between European clubs got more intense and as the politicization of fan clubs grew more and more with you know the 70s and social movements becoming very politicized generally across Europe that then led to the violence becoming the sort of more extreme stabbings killings mm. you know emergence of what you see now in eastern Europe for instance the ultra scene didn't really exist in eastern Europe until the fall of the Soviet Union which that's become... They're calling themselves ultras. But there's nothing ultras about organizing 15 on 15 in a forest. It's about harkening back to that idea of tide football and who can take over each other's space. Mm. It's supposed to be a bit fun. There was codes. If someone went down, you wouldn't hit them. Yeah. You didn't bring knives. You could use sticks and whatever. It was more about messing up the other person's city than it was necessarily messing with them. Mm. You'd want to take a flag or a prize. right? And... Within the Ultras scene, even today, when an Ultras gets killed, even though maybe they've provoked this violence, the entire European scene will have banners for that person in apology. So there's this this intention to keep it a
0: game. Mm. And there's this difficulty. It just doesn't ever work, though. I mean you can see, see even, even with That's like a different analogy though like to talk about party politics even in the UK or in America for example and we see at the moment things are moving between two extremes and one way of looking at that is that over the last sort of 20 or 30 years those rivalries which are supposed to be you know for want of a better term playful or supposed to have rules kind of stop having rules or those things get peeled away or things become more aggressive. And how, can you ever have what you're describing as the sort of ideal environment and philosophy for ultras without it leading to violence? And equally, are the ultras groups often just a good foil for people to blame? Because obviously like, they're not the reason for violence. I mean,
1: can you have a world of ultras without violence? I mean, will you have a world of a bunch of men going to football matches and no violence? Will exactly. you have a world where people get in an arena, do something hyper-competitive, watch it, and then there's no violence afterwards? Yes. yeah. Maybe. So what's, your, what's, we, what's when, your stand on Maybe, right? That, that that world in some sort of utopia, but like yeah. in terms of the world, ultras Sure. That 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 level of violence potentially will always exist to some extent, mm-hmm. you know, because because the environment will be so charged and so built up and so tense. What you have to look at is where the success stories are. Yeah. So you look at places like Sweden or Germany. Yeah. Yes, there are complaints about the ultra scene being violent, but how have they kind of curbed that? They haven't curbed it through mass repression, looking for fan ID laws, having people do fingerprints. The more you've criminalized supporters, the more you've put them in cages. Tendentially, the more extreme acts of violence occur per year. Yeah. So you know, but the, the, the heavier the repressions have been on Italian ultras, the more actual casualties and deaths that have actually been. So, so how do you suggest because because it's that, made, that it's, it's the authorities a situation deal with it? Where the extremity of the violence becomes. You know, you pin people against each other, so when you actually come into contact, it becomes something completely Mm. out of the norm and insane. In Germany, they've managed to do something very interesting in Sweden, which is it's actually working at the 50 plus one rule and empowering fandom in general. Because never forget, Ultras are just an extension of the fan scene. And at the heart of Ultras, what lies at first above everything is the best interest of their football team. Mm -hmm. And being an involved member, dedicated 24 hours a day, and finding social cohesion through the progress of that football club and how can you behave and act and create things on the stand that will heighten your reputation as supporters and add to the success of the team
0: so it's like it's a status game right it's
1: a status game yeah in Germany if you have you know so much of what ultras groups do because we're, we're just characterizing the violence you know Every single weekend, ultras groups are raising money for social activities within their city. They're doing food banks. They're going around helping the homeless, bringing covers to them. You yeah. can look. You can look at every supporters group within Europe, even yeah. within England, right? I mean, this year you even have the, the the amazing case of the Liverpool supporters who went away to Paris, I think, to do the food drive, and on their way back from Paris, they actually ended up finding two refugees inside of their bus who had hit under the bus to come back across, and they sort of welcomed them. I mean, it was it's, it's also inherent kind of in, this, in the spirit of fandom. There's, there's that sort of community helping and, and, and how fans can sort of be that aspect. Now, within the violence aspect, the more you can sort of empower people and make them feel part of their club and their community. So when you give people a fan ownership role, when people are voting on their board, when people are able to get standing room within their stadium, people are able to get certain privileges, around football and around Mm. the football team that all of a sudden makes them an active actor in the progress of the club. And the club is treated like a club again, not like a franchise. So the more football teams have removed themselves from ultras having an active role in more than just rebel rousing and creating chaos on a stand, but actually being a fundamental part of the inner workings of a club – the better the situation kind of tends to work out because you know, there are limitations there. You know how good you have it. You know what the advantages of what you're able to build are. And there's also a bigger interconnectedness with, with supporters mm. because as much as you know, the rivalries in Germany may be extremely intense and extremely heated, Schalke and Dortmund are both fighting for Monday night matches to be canceled. Yeah. Schalke and Dortmund are both trying to maintain the 50 plus 1 rule. They both want to reduce police repressions. They want both want to make the, the ticket prices cheaper. They both want to make train access easier. You know, they want to make all these things the general atmosphere for the entire fan club is better. And the community of Dortmund or the community of whatever club will always come at first over the behest of the interest of some of the ultras. Yeah. And so when you make the ultras a correlated part of the rest of that and, and, and empower them to their best function, they can be a really an amazing force for, you know, Building so much of of, of what makes the club special.
0: Mm. One of the things I've heard often about uh, Richard Scudamore, for example, from from the Premier League, who I think has just left this year or is just leaving with a massive payout. One of the things that he is acclaimed for within the industry is making the Premier League uh, as a sort of as an individual organisation something for wealthier people, right? And, uh, you know, he sort of introduced football to the middle classes Is the headline, which is obviously ridiculous, but there's one way of looking at it which says if you commercialise it and if you make it a, uh, a safer space, air quotes, for the middle class is to come then this is one of the ways that you root violence out of the game and there is an argument to say that 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 has worked in the Premier League that obviously are massive negative sides of it as well one of the things that we were talking about just before was about the nature of violence in in fans as well as ultras groups as you say rightly I don't think you can ever eradicate that from the game as much as you could have hope of eradicating it from human beings but there's there's a clear sort of there's a clear line from the top which is you know absolutely no tolerance policy with regards to violence and the premier league you know seems to be the the sort of result of that where do you stand between those two things because at the same time as saying we understand it and you know maybe at times if there's rules it's sort of part of the game and it's but at at the same time you have to you know say you don't have any tolerance for it right how do you how do you personally sit between those two things? Because it's a complicated question. I mean, we can look at the English
1: model and we can look at the German model. Yeah. We can I mean, look, the, the German model, as you just said, is very successful. We can look statistically on who's getting more people into seats. Yeah. You no. Know, how much is the league able to profit? Um, the 50 plus one rule probably hurts the German league a little bit. Yeah. But... How much is community involved in these German teams? What are the participation rates of youth players going to these German teams, playing for the amateur levels and the sub-amateur levels? Mm -hmm. How much more of a role and stake do these football clubs have in their communities? How is it in Germany you can have a club like Sampaoli, which is in the second division, and outsells every single team besides Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, because they mean something more within their community and thing? But you don't have that at every team in the league, right? No, but you have these emergent stories and you have these sort of connections with these clubs that it, it becomes really about that city and place and it becomes a really interesting experience to kind of go out there and experience that. With mm. Within England, the idea of solving violence beca- um, by kicking out the poor, by raising the prices of seats... Which is what it is. I mean, yeah, that's not, there's that's, no point in that's, pretending. That's, that's, that's what an it inherently was. classist and problematic idea. Yeah. And the idea that that is working towards a solution, I think, is assuming it was true... That poorer people were more violent, mm-hmm. kicking them out of the stadium will not resolve the problem. No. It will just protect the pro- protect the product of football sure. Football was never supposed to be a product. Mm-hmm. Football clubs were clubs they were a gift to the community they were treated on they should be treated on the level of churches they're, they're, they're really important sort of institutions for us in, in modern life. They've defined the last century of what it means to be a citizen of, certainly in Europe of a country, of a city, of a place, of a region. Mm. So, this idea that, you know, you can, you can raise the money of seats, uh, you know, you can raise the money of stadiums, you can re- reduce the violence in English football that way, it's also proven very faulty. Mm-hmm. You know, English football, the violence has maybe moved away from the grounds. Yeah. Um, the use of CT- CCTV for punishing individual fans has been extremely effective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a difficult debate, that one. Um, But certainly the way you can go into England, they use CCTV, they'll find the individual fans who've acted, behaved badly, rather than what you'll see in the collective punishment systems that they'll have across a lot of Europe, I think is much more effective. In the UK? In the UK, because they can point out the individuals. Mm -hmm. But again, how much more effective of a solution and difficult of a solution is it? To say, okay, we're going to not look at profits. We're going to go for a 50 plus one system. We're going to empower fans to come in to build these fan ladens, have them be taxed, have them be sort of carefully monitored and researched, and we can have transparency over these institutions, Mm. and we can build up an idea and a sense of ownership over your club. Or you can go, all right, (laughs) just kick out the poor ones. All clean. You know, they packed themselves into, you know, the the lunatics (laughs) packed themselves into Hillsborough and killed themselves. So let's kill them all out because they can't be here because they can't possibly be responsible enough. Mm -hmm. You know, in the meantime, we've come to a solution in England where at every halftime we pin people into a little corner in the bar of the stadium. And everyone tries downing three pints before they get back outside because somehow that'll keep us more responsible. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a tendency that you've seen with many things. I mean, even UEFA even this year has taken that kind of a, uh, approach and considered it illegal. Yeah. So at the beginning of the season, you weren't allowed to drink in Champions League matches anywhere in Europe. However, football supporters Europe went to UEFA and said, you're allowed to drink in the hospitality areas, in the VIP areas, mm-hmm. Heineken serving people beers in the countries where you can drink at the games. Yeah, That is a classist law. Yeah. You're presuming that people in the popular stance can't behave as responsible as people who are sitting in the corporate seats. Yeah. So they've changed the law now, and if you're in Germany or a number of other countries where you can have a beer in the stadium, you can have that beer in the stadium. Yeah. And they've made the law relative to the country. Yeah. Because to impose the law across
0: Europe over that,
1: yeah. It's inherently wrong to assume that people who have a certain economic status mm. can do a certain thing.
0: But let's talk about safety then, because often many of these things that are banned within football stadiums are sort of banned under the under the name of, of health and safety. And they're, of, they're obviously pretty good examples of, of reasons as to why that should be the case. Smoking, particularly, right. Uh, drinking in the stadium, obviously, in the UK is one thing, and you know, lots of other places in Europe as well. The other one is flares. And we're going to talk about flares anyway, because uh, from what I understand, they're a sort of significant part of, of Ultra's culture, Uh are they unsafe? I don't really understand what they are, Marty. <laughs> and also, uh, after that, what's, what's their what's their significance with it within?
1: So our, our flares are. At the end of the day, I understand why any fire brigade and city authority looks at a lot of people holding burning sticks in a packed-out stand with thousands of people in it. So at the end of the day, I understand why sort of any authority or health and safety officer would look at someone holding a burning stick with thousands of people in that space and say, It's on fire. This is not the safest thing in the world. The idea that it can't be done safely is flawed because there there's countries and clubs who do it safely. You know, you can go to um, Brand in Norway, you know, where I I went to a game there. Where you actually have the SLO, the Supporters Liaison Officer, who walks up to the stands at the beginning of the game, puts down a bucket of flares, and the families come and pick them up and use them responsibly at a coordinated, designated time of the game. Mm. I've also heard Ultras themselves look at that video that we made at Copa90 and say, ah, it's no fun if they're being told when you can use them. I've also seen the MLS where a fire marshal comes in and lights a smoke bomb when you score a goal, which is the most cringeworthy thing in the world. <laughs> right? It's a very difficult balance. Flares make for an amazing atmosphere. Um, they do add a lot when you're doing a choreography or building a moment, a goal goes in. It adds a lot to the party. To go back to the same example, I keep harping on again and again, but it really works there. You go to Sweden, you go to Germany. There are supporters liaison officers. Those supporters liaison officers are in direct dialogue with the police systems. Mm-hmm. The supporters are not technically allowed to bring these flares in. The supporters liaison officers are technically not allowed to know the supporters are bringing them in. However, amongst each other, they have an idea of what's going to happen with watch game unofficially. Sure. Supporters liaison officers don't officially report it to the police. They create the necessary situations where... You have buckets around. They more or less know the young guys. In Sweden, they put them through a quick one-day training course. And it works out. And, like, yeah, it probably wouldn't be the worst idea if the clubs worked together with the fans and said, if you're going to use this, so sure. go through a one-day course where you speak with a fireman about, like, what to do if someone burns yeah. their hand immediately or something. Here's some because Here's a fire I extinguisher. Seen people get hurt with flares sure. also. I would like it. You know, I would... What it's, is a flare? I don't. I mean, nice. I mean the, the reason why flares are a tradition in football is because football emerged from the English who brought them over to Europe, mm-hmm. right? It came on boats. The first towns to get it are places like Le Havre, Huelva in Spain, um, Genova in Italy. They get these. They get they get football teams and they establish themselves there because of the port and trading connections from the UK. Mm-hmm. What are flares for? They're for boats. They're light signals. Mm-hmm. Flares are just another ritual to harken back again because mm-hmm. this ultra's kind of sense of nostalgia. Mm-hmm to the origin of football the idea of coming in the light the beacon the lighthouse i mean it's something you that's see in nice. so many other clubs
0: that's a nice idea i did not know that and and
1: thinking about it and talking about it that way in those origins and you'll see it a lot in the flags and the banners and the way they're depicted and the use of the flare and certain ideas of that mm-hmm. right um even i mean when you get into italy or spain you know so all these banners of you're the light you're the star in my eye <laughs> really romantic sort of phrases in terms um and then there's there's innovations also in Sweden to make non-flammable flares, which I've heard of, which don't quite look as good. Yeah. They, they exist. They're coming. They're on the way. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Again, it's it, it, it's about this really real reality, which supporters feel, which can which can sometimes dance on conspiracy theories. So feel free to berate me in the comments. <laughs> but you take a situation of football where. Football supporters were the stakeholders. They were the ones going into the ground. The supporters in the ultras were creating the biggest atmosphere and attracting the most supporters into their space of that ground. Thus, they were the biggest stakeholders for the club. Over time, paid television came in. And the value of players and the value of the teams and the value of how much commercial revenue they were making made football fans almost insignificant. However, the product that all these people were pushing as they were making football fans insignificant depended on the football fans. Mm -hmm. Very few places in the world have gone back and said, okay, how can we re-empower you because you're an essential part of this game? Where they have, you've seen a lot of progress and growth. Where they haven't, you've seen the situation stagnate, if not worsen, because people have been criminalized more and more. And I think at the end of the day, you also probably have a latent effect, which is if you criminalize a subgroup more and more, Mm. it'll attract pretty shady people. Right. And so you go through two, three, four generations of the ultras being criminals and like the criminals show up. Right. And so that's it's a it's a difficult process. And how do you come back from that? Germany fought that process because in the 1980s, you had a massive neo-Nazi skinhead movement in Germany. It became very realistic that the League had to do something to educate those supporters Mm -hmm. because in Germany they were doing something that is literally sentenceable by 10 years in jail
0: well, and, also, and also they're hyper vigilant about and hyper like about that, these right. kind of things and so
1: and they have good experience in creating programs and education for reconciliation for these kinds of things and they actively did it and built it and you know the, the progress has been incredible
0: so the i hate to keep talking about the premier league but if it, it feels no, like important. yeah i mean it feels it feels like the Antithesis of yes. what you're de- what you're describing, right? absolutely. And also, ultra movements in the UK specifically. I don't really. I mean, when I think of ultras, I think of I think of Italy. What's the scene like in, in the UK? Um, because obviously, you know, we've been talking about Germany and the, the success that fan movements have, have had there. We've made a few videos about it on the channel as well, as I'm sure of Copper ninety. Um, what's the scene like in the UK? Because it feels like for the people who are in power with the Premier League, everything's going really, really well. There would be no reason for them to look to fan groups to try and engage also you know clubs like Manchester United for example they can fill the stadium every weekend with 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 tourists and that's fine for them they don't they don't care about it uh as you said like people often say the Emirates is too quiet but you know on TV it doesn't really matter who gives a shit you know so how do you how do you combat that and what what's the what's the scene like
1: well in England, so I think a, a, a good
0: place to start, first of all, is like the the
1: back to how the ultra scene. We wait?
0: Yeah, so, sorry, we're just going to pause for a second while we wait for that, the downstairs alarm, which goes off repeatedly, to stop. Okay, sorry for the interruption. Uh, the alarm has stopped. Hopefully, no one was burgled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were just about to tell me, Martina, about the the ultra scene in England. So. To begin with sort of the ultra scene and and how it really
1: emerges and travels, right? You have to look at European football and and the emergence of the hooligan scene emerging into kind of a casual scene, the clothes, the dress, um, European supporters starting to emulate that. And you really get the beginnings of some of the ultra's rituals with, you know, when you see Liverpool on Champions League night. You've got the two full poles, you've got the flags, you've got the banners. And it's no coincidence that England's most successful team in Europe is the team who was the first to adopt a lot of the colors that you might see in the Champions League you know a lot of the chanting of uh, from, from, from the cop end is is considered emblematic um, and it dances in a lot of ways still on the ultra scenes and that you'll see you know already the, por- the pro Corbin message this year that emerged out of, out of the cop end was was interesting. it was very political for, for something that's come from Europe the ongoing fight for, for the '96 great right? um, those are those are all sort of big campaigns that that, that are reflective of organized support, and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 so everything that's come from Liverpool in the past, I think, has really been the first reference point in England. But then now, as you're getting towards the more modern time, obviously there's the exception of Celtic, but Celtic is a bit different in that. They exist in Scotland, they've got this Irish identity, it's always been very European, they've made friendships everywhere because of their identity, Um, right, Celtic has always been this very attractive club for people, it's always been this rebel club, and obviously within an ultra's mentality and the idea of rebelliousness, it was inevitable that Celtic and the Green Brigade and the international connections that are already sort of created from the green brigade's connection also with the IRA and things would make connections with fan groups all over Europe around the world mm-hmm. and Celtics always in the Champions League so which they're is, always going to learn from others
0: which is incidentally going to be something which doesn't you know endear the group to large parts of the UK right the connection to the IRA yeah. as an as an example uh,
1: absolutely and you know this, this is still <laughs> the ongoing chanting right it's it's considered problematic to many people in the UK um an identity an idea of identity for them which they would argue is overly politicized and much more a sense of identity. But, you know, they've had successes in, in their work and because of their history and importance as a supporters group, they've got standing room now in Celtic on league games. You know, it's, 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 it's a development that you'd only see in Germany, Denmark, other places in Northern Europe that they were able to achieve uh, the positive effects of having a supporters group. Mm. And then you look into today. So the the, the big ultra scenes, I mean, if, if you want to talk about the Premier League, the sort of one that stands out are the Holmesdale Fanatics. So uh, at Crystal Palace, Um, you know, they've they 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 have a connection with Panionios in Greece, who I think has has brought in a lot of the culture and tradition for being active supporters. You know, I met a couple of them at Paris Saint-Germain. You often have this connection of of supporters groups creating connections only based on colors. Um, So Panionios and PSG would lend themselves easily to Crystal Palace. Um, And, you know, that really has seen itself as an active supporters group who are singing for 90 minutes. Um, they're bringing their banner around, they're doing corteos to games. Um, this year they had an attempt at getting into the middle of their stand. Um, it wasn't completely successful. I think they weren't allowed in the ground for the first several months. What do you mean they had an attempt to get into so the middle of their stand? So basically the Crystal Palace, uh, the Homesdale Fanatics have always been in the corner of uh, of their end. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to move to the center in order to sort of begin the support everywhere. So is, back to is, this front-facing supporter looking back at the rest of the crowd and building right. up a more... Engaged, vibrant, ninety minutes of constant chanting.
0: And, and in the corner, because that's where this, they bought their season tickets. Or in the corner because that's, that's where yeah, the club yeah, won the proxy, be. They had their season
1: tickets right. there. It's, okay. well, so it's not. It's not. It's not. Besides it's not, Fulham, the smallest t- say stadium in the Premier League, I think. Right. Okay. Um, so I mean, it's it's where they were able to be located, and they were trying to work with the club for years and and get some engagement to moving into the central stand. And then the bigger things you'll see in, in terms of ultras movements, and and I think why the ultras movement is so easily kind of placed in this is with new ideas of fan ownership and smaller non-league clubs and grassroots mm-hmm. clubs around England. You know, you look at surveys and since the Taylor report and since everyone's been standing, sitting for so long in English stadiums, you know, people don't really want smoke or flags in English grounds. No. They've, they've priced out a lot of the sort of more passionate, loud standing room culture of, of football grounds. And, and it's not English. And, Fine, you know, English, was, England's always had a little bit of a different
0: culture doing things. I like to sit down. Yep. <laughs> that's, but that's just because I'm lazy and not passionate. As you please. That's it. So, you know,
1: <laughs> so this, this, you know it, it begins with things like FC United of Manchester. You know, they've got an all-standing room end. They've got little subgroups. you have got a lot of singing over the 90 minutes. Um, but that it makes sense. It's a rebellion against Glazer's the modernization of football, the expense of, of going to matches, the fact that they felt disenfranchised and disconnected from their club, they built something new. Do you think it needs and to be a rebellion? That
0: mentality. Do you think it needs to have something to fight against? What would it look like if, you know, because one of the things we've been talking about is the idea of, uh, of Ultras groups and fan groups being given more of a voice within club, their clubs within football. Uh, they're obviously in a position where they're fighting for that. What would that look like if there were, if there were no need for a rebellion? Would you think it would still exist with the same kind of passion? Because the idea of having something to rally against is sort of central to tribalism anyway, right?
1: No, I mean, I think, I think that absolutely. I think that the fact that supporters are fighting for more than just being active voice on the stands, it, it, it makes the movement more interesting and more powerful. But that's, mm. that's just in so much as it, it makes our movement more reflective of so many other things globally right mm-hmm. that that's why the ultras movement i think becomes something so interesting is because when you're lo- talking about big money disempowering people for something that belongs to them in their community yeah. it's a it's a tale as old as time right it, it's something that is reflective of so many other things in society that you know that fight happening in the stands i mean again it's like the violence question like will you yeah. ever remove that will there ever be this not greater evil to kind of go up against no it's always going to that's the nature of a democratic system. Well, rubbing, there needs to be some sort of friction for mm-hmm. self betterment.
0: You know, yeah. there needs to be a level of accountability there okay. and
1: supporters are a form of accountability.
0: You mentioned, uh, Jeremy Corbyn before, uh, with reference to chance coming from the cop, right? But let's talk about the idea of, of, of where politics is in, in, in ultras. And it's, my rudimentary understanding, again, before I spoke to you about it, was that in Italy, for example, and please correct me when I am wrong, that some fan groups, or not even fan groups necessarily, what I thought before was that fans of uh, Lazio, for example, sort of uh, lean, to, to lean to the right, fans of Roma lean to the left. Is that, is that true? How does it how does it work in Italy? So because it seems to be quite it seems to be quite uh, specific. So there. two bits. First of all, just to finish off on,
1: on, I'd be remiss not to mention it of the emergence of the ultras culture in England. Okay. Um. You now you've got I mean beyond FC United of Manchester, you've got little towns like Eastbourne Town, mm-hmm. Enfield has their ultras scene, Clapton has an ultras scene, Whitehawk has an ultras scene, Dolich Hamlet has an ultras scene, or a version of it. Mm-hmm. And the definition is very vague. You know. I'm. To scene. I mean, are they organizing fights or their flares being let off every weekend? No, the mm-hmm. small clubs who can't really, you know, permit themselves these things within the UK. The dynamic and the system is much different, but they're taking these rituals, they're adopting these ideas, they're singing over 90 minutes, they're putting out messages and banners about their own community, how to improve it, they're getting involved, raising money for different social activities. Mm. These are all essential tenets of, of, of what it means to, to create the sense of aggregation in the space, which is an informal space that you're fighting for something that's bigger than just the football team. Yeah. It's something that via the excuse of the football team, you're then becoming a bigger part and bigger representative of your community. So then we can get into the politicization of football in Italy. If that is, from the Italian perspective, the origin of ultras is is kind of being involved in an active member of not just your team, but politics around that city. The specific ultras groups tend to then develop political identities within Italy. Now this has shifted from kind of the way young people have voted in the the country historically. So in the 70s you had an emergence of all far left ultras groups. Then towards the 80s and the 90s, they move towards the far right. Um, and it's and it's been this sort of pull back and forth over time. Now, Lazio Edith for instance, are very famously far right. A um, number of controversial messages in the past, from you know, kill all the Jews to Roma, your Jews, to the famous Anne Frank stickers. I don't know if you saw earlier this season, which were nothing short of horrendous. Um that's the, the the same sort of political campaigning will happen at Livorno for the far left. Um, there's clubs that take on these identities really heavily, uh, and
0: sorry, you know, that's the, they're working on. The, we've picked a really bad day to do this. They're working on the, the room next door as well, so we, we're just gonna have to crack on. But if there are but dri- again, drills these, are, in the background, these are
1: these are the, the, it's 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 reflections of how the youth are voting in that time period. You know, there there has been use of political campaignings and terraces and supports. Yeah. Um, But we go back to this idea again of the supporter is an active member of their community. The supporter is raising money. The supporter is okay when it touches on political campaign lines. A lot of the more traditional ultras would say no, it's overstepping the boundaries. A lot of them wouldn't. You know, mm-hmm. um, from, and, and, and you have this everywhere all over the world in active supporters groups. I mean, in England, you had campaigns for minor strikes and stuff emerging in the terraces of Middlesbrough, historically, right? Mm-hmm. In Italy, you had the first workers movements, the, the, the Brigate, the, the Brigate rosse were the, the far left, the far left communist movements in Italy, the Milan stand, which is now the group doesn't, has technically a far right politic to them. But they're avowedly apolitical. Are called the Brigate Rossonere, so they take the emergence of these sort of old names and terms. In Argentina, the Barras Bravas at some point were found supporting Macri because Macri was seen as a Boca Juniors person who could protect their interests. Um, you know, in Egypt, we talk about the revolution, the role of the Al Ahly and Zamalek ultras in Tahrir Square. Mm. In
0: let's let's Turkey. talk let's talk about that though, because that that's quite sig- significant as uh, as an event, right? I mean, I, I was reading earlier we were talking about this that uh, in 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 Egypt, uh, ultras groups are seen as the second biggest organizations after the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, and played a significant role in the revolution. C- can you briefly sort of talk me through what? What actually happened? Absolutely. So in, in in Egypt, in the revolution, I mean, it was, there was, this is 2011, right?
1: Yeah. And so social institutions over years in Egypt weren't allowed to sort of form themselves. Cultural clubs, these kinds of things were very difficult to form. The Muslim Brotherhood obviously has its exception because of the precarious sort of religious power it held. Um, hence the election of Morsi later. And then there were the football Football supporters groups, or really the club supporters groups, where Zamalek and Al they're the two major teams in uh, in Cairo. Al Ahly is the most successful club in African football. They've won the most African Champions Leagues of everyone. Mm. I think they're the third most cup winning team in the world, yeah. behind Boca Juniors, AC Milan, maybe Real Madrid's and their Barcelona, depending on who's won more in the last five years. Um, So they hold a really important sway and and they represent, as sort of ultras and supporters do, a cross-section of society. It's not contingent on whether the kid is a working-class slum dweller or it's a doctor
0: or a lawyer or a journalist. They're all there together. Because I thought originally that Alashley was was more the sort of proletariat and that Zamalek was the, you know, for want of a better term, the bourgeois. Is that not true? The clubs might have these overarching titles the
1: ultras groups are representative of all of society and when all of society is going in a revolution the ultras groups all of a sudden empower themselves via their massive whatsapp groups which have people all over who they're used to regularly organizing and coordinating because on a day to day you're doing away buses where are the banners who's got food for what One of our supporters got injured, which doctor would we send him to? All of these things are questions that have come up day to day for 30 years in the history of the supporters group, Mm -hmm. that when a situation of revolution came up and coming into the square and organizing a space to do all of those things you need to do in every away day, it was a natural fit. And all of a sudden you saw, you know, the ultras who were the young, creative thinking young people within the country becoming the point of inspiration and the the means of organization to do everything it took to actually confront the police in Tahrir Square. So from the young people in front of the lines to doctors in the back healing people to the organization of food. That was all something being done and negotiated through them. The sentiments that they were reflecting were sentiments that have been coming from their stands for years. right? You've had messages against the political dictatorship, against the support of Israel against support of the US government against all of these things that all oh, the, the price of bread things that had frustrated and and angered people for years that by the time there was a moment where something could move in society the supporters group had every motivation and every functional capability to be the change that that city sort of needed and that country sort of needed <laughs> Th- that's something that's reflected in many places. In the, I, another massive example, I would point out is in is in Turkey, you know, at the Gezi Park and and Taksim Square protests.
0: Mm.
1: there was a film called Istanbul United, and you know it, it really expands out to more than just Istanbul because all the ultra groups within Turkey sort of had some active role of protesting against the government at that time. But particularly within Istanbul, I mean, one of the most intense rivalries in the world is. Galatasaray, batch and Bashiktas. When that park got attacked by the police to turn it into a military camp, and they began to kick out environmentalists brutally, all three supporters groups came together, despite the politics, and started standing up against the police. Mm-hmm. Now, why are they so good for standing up against the police? Because week to week, football fans have been characterized as criminals. Right. There's been intense situations with the police. They're immune to tear gas. As a metaphor. They're used... They're. they're they're used to it. They know the different techniques. You know, yeah. this thing of, oh, bring a giant Evian bottle of water with you so you can mm. put the tear gas bottles inside and tap them so they don't blind you for five minutes. Like, mm-hmm. these are all things that they're conscious of and aware of.
0: They're experienced protesters. They're experienced like what you're saying. Protesters. But the, the funny thing for me hearing that is that they're ultras football fans, but right. they're the most experienced protesters you but, have in Turkey.
1: But ultras stands have always been, and, like, this is why I think... <laughs> This keep calm, carry on thing is something that supporters make fun of all over Europe mm-hmm. that we ha- you have in England. Of this idea of like, and it's something very reused in the ultra scene of like, keep calm, carry on. Like, don't, don't express the fu- functional, the, the political frustration in the hour, mm-hmm. right? Ultras just freak the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Like, burn it down, fix it, find something. When AC Milan played Atalanta the year um, Gabriele Sandri was killed in Italy there were over 300 million euros in damages done all across Italy because the year before, they'd stopped a football match when a police officer was killed. They didn't when a fan was killed. They felt that the state representative was more important than them after years and years of them feeling repressed. So they were able to turn the state on its head over a day. Mm-hmm. And you know that kind of fast reaction, as much as we say, oh, it's, it, you know, it's chaos, it's rubble-rousing, it's things. It's civil it, disobedience. It, that civil disobedience, we've come to a point, I think, now where... If the yellow vest proves something, it's that like we kind of need to act like babies to get hurt. You know, you kind of need to smash things. And actually you get listened to because recently, you know, it's, 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 been, it's, it's been a very frustrating political process. Mm. Right. And the idea of ultras being this potential force, it's problematic, it's difficult. I am of the perspective that I'm really glad the Black Panthers existed next to Martin Luther King. Because I don't think any change would have been made without the threat of Malcolm X. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that what the ultras do and what they can push and that extremity, uh, that freedom of thought is something super important. And it you need it for the full spectrum. And it speaks speaks volumes about our sense of democracy.
0: But you need Martin Luther King as much as you need Malcolm X, right? And it speaks volumes about our sense
1: of democracy, though, that we look at how can we take these people out of the stands? Let's outprice them. They're inherently not capable of behaving properly in front of our commercial product.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: No. Like, football was something that's always ours. Football is something that belongs to the little kid in the street playing with an accumulated balls of trash bags and dreaming that one day he can get to that point. Mm -hmm. And the frustrations of that person's community should be super vocal in the stands. Because those are the communities where the next stars that we're all going to be watching are from. And trying to drown out that voice, trying to negate that voice. It's super anti-democratic. In the Soviet times, it was ultras calling for democracy, mm. and that voice was drowned out for years. In Egypt, after the pretty much government-programmed killing of the supporters at Port Said, where you saw 74 fans killed between al Ahly and the team of Port Said. In Turkey, with the massive arrests of football supporters that you've seen, and you know, most of the Besiktas leaders are now in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many parts of the world where these repressions are getting put in and ultras have been painted as this negative brush where it's very to say, oh, yeah, the rebel reserves have been taken away and we can have our family football back. Mm. But in reality, if we uncode the, 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 the situation and we look into the stands, the messages that are being displayed and the things that are being said, they're very important things, mm. you know? As much as Lazio's a big problem, the biggest problem to me is that the biggest punishment they got was not for saying Jews burn in the gas chambers. It was for saying "Shame on you, Platini, way for mafia." <laughs> now, yeah. Platini's been kicked out of European football. Yeah, shame on you. They were right. Mm. That was the biggest punishment they get. Right. My guys, we're trying to make football a respect campaign better for the people. I doesn't look that way to me, and it doesn't look that way to supporters all across the Europe who, mm-hmm. at every single game, you will see one flag that says wefa Mafia. Yeah. You'll see one banner that says against modern football. You'll see someone getting frustrated at this reality where, yeah, they all have very real local relative issues they're trying to express. Yeah. And they're being painted with the same brush of violence when there's like a beautiful tapestry of opinions and perspectives in there Yeah, that, I don't know, do you think, does it... Like, the the comment, does it feel progressive to you that we paint them as criminals?
0: To me, it feels really like not forward thinking. Mm. Here's where I am, right? And we were talking about this a little bit outside. When the alarm went off, we went out for a, a chat outside, came back in. What I was saying there, I'll say now, which is that I'm English, right? I lived in Wales for a while. Most of my family are from Ireland. I was born here, so were my parents, right? Uh, and I think this this kind of links into sort of political feeling in England, not so much at the moment because Brexit is, is sort of stirring things up, right? But certainly for for a while, um, and particularly amongst the sort of the group of people that I am aware of and associate with in London, as a prime example. I don't feel any sort of sense of um, national pride, right? I think nationally speaking, you know, ironically, nationally speaking, I think part of that is a kind of fallout of the empire, as an example, right? There's an awful lot of stuff as an English person to be ashamed of for what's what's come before us, right? And so I think similarly, almost uh, although funnily enough in a very different way in Germany as we've talked about before there's the same there's a similar sort of thing there's a hypervigilance about a certain type of political feeling or a certain type of nationalism right because as we've discussed with Lazio and Roma there's two different sides of, of that of that coin right mm. so well in a way so in in when well, as it relates to, to football for me I already feel totally um, dispassionate about it. I feel no connection to it, really. I enjoy watching it, and I enjoy sort of writing about it and learning about it, and I think the stuff that we're talking about today is very interesting to me. But in this country, I, I don't feel any sort of connection. You know, The other thing I think that's happened over the same time period is, is obviously the, the rise of individualism. And that I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that impact on me. I'm aware of the sort of negatives of that as well. I'm aware... Of, of how I, I feel a kind of acute sense of not really wanting to be part of any group. And often I, I am mean, in conflict as to whether that is a good thing or, or not, because obviously, again, there's, there's sort of pros and cons on both sides of it. But I definitely feel that very strongly, which means that I'm not part of an ultras group. I understand the passion and everything you've said I agree with. But at the same time, I feel sort of incapable of understanding in, in, a, in a visceral way, right? So with that in mind do you do you think that you know the advent of individualism is kind of maybe the biggest enemy of 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 ultras in the sense that it's the biggest enemy of of a, a group collective right if you have if you have uh 75,000 individual fans who are willing to pay to go and watch Manchester United but don't need to be part of a group collective to do that the club don't care because they're selling out every week uh the TV studios don't care because there's no violence and they can protect the product and sell advertising on it that seems to me that that is 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 the root of that cause and if you look back at, over various different uh, political disputes and and uh, protests over the last sort of four or five decades individualism is also one of the you know one of the key one of the key things that had a massive impact on 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 breaking up those sorts of groups right whether that is done intentionally or not is a totally different conversation and i don't think anyone at uefa or fifa or the premier league is clever enough to sort of do that intentionally but it's undoubtedly undoubtedly uh, an, has an impact right mm-hmm. is that potentially the biggest threat to this sort of movement and and should it should it be as well so i mean i think
1: the first of all i think the philosophy of individualism is not something new i think that ultras actually in a lot of ways emerge as a counteraction to individualism Right, I think the the whole sense of going to the stands and, and and manifesting this collective voice comes from less people going into the squares and, and manifesting that opinion, or not having the space to go into the square and, and manifest that opinion.
0: Yeah, but then, what about people like groups like the Casuals, for example, who define themselves by the same sorts of, sort of clothes? They're still, buy, you know, buying into this. One of the other things we're going to talk about is, is commercialization as well. But there, is, there is a conflict there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I don't want this to become a cabin in the woods conversation I
1: mean is there a conflict there there is no conflict in the casual scene it's become something very interesting which is that the casuals have scared off the brands that they're consuming (laughs) to consume from football so in a sense sense of it they've done something kind of cheeky which is like I know you would like to put your streetwear brand on football Adidas and I know you'd like to advertise in football Stonewall but like there's a video of one of us kicking somebody in the face in one of your products every weekend so you can't do that you know it is, yeah maybe there's a little bit of hypocrisy in the wanting to do, sort of dress and the individualism and the, the consumerism it's not of not intentional that. but I, I don't mean I don't, I don't I don't don't I don't, it's a criticism I'm not saying it's a criticism I don't know that the consumerism of getting the jacket because you're, you've been abroad becomes that I think actually it's uh, th- that now is a collective identity of mm. if for a while it was the coolest kids got to go to continental Europe and get those jackets mm-hmm. and now you're just feeding off that tradition and culture okay right um when you look at the success of fit, print in football, fanzines, like these things are still collective messages that very successfully run through supporters' groups. There is something everyone's reading, everyone's knowing about these common issues, everyone's actually putting pen to paper and looking at these things. Mm-hmm. When you go into the stands, they're trying to disincentivize you from pulling at your phone. They don't, they want a few people, they want the collective voice and being in the moment and in the action as much as possible. When we talk about the our generation of being like the lonely in front of a computer screen generation, like turn off the TV and go to the fucking stadium mm. is a campaign slogan. Right. It's it, it's 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 all about that. Come and feel connected with a group of people. You can't tell me that bouncing for 90 minutes to see your team beat the rivals with all your friends two one will not help cure your depression or at least make you feel slightly less lonely in the world.
0: Right. Sure. It's or at the very least, serve as a distraction. Serve as a distraction. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the idea of going to the stadium and, and getting out of your space and your your element and that sort of isolation, it's it's everything that people look at the ultra scene as kind of a, a, its greatest point of inspiration, right? So I, maybe we can throw a picture of this or something on on a, on a comment somewhere. But there was a choreography that Sporting Lisbon did in in December of this year to sort of congratulate Italy on 50 years of, of the ultra scene. If you have it on your phone, it probably will show on and, the camera. And they sort, watch of, they sort of talk about this idea of, you know, they, they sort of talk about this idea of, here, let me get you over there, um, union, uh, freedom, tradition, respect, autonomy, and solidarity, right? So it's, it's this idea of all of the values that ultras have sort of collectively together. And, and, and these ideas are very collective ideas. Um, so that sense of individualism um, can get put aside for your group and your 90 minutes. And you're doing something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, when you can do that via a stand, it becomes really attractive because it's not just let's go to a community organizing meeting. Mm-hmm. It's fun. right? It's, it's social engagement done in a fun way. Mm -hmm. Which, there's not a lot else that offers that, and it's why, statistically speaking, Ultras is the biggest youth movement in the world. Like, move over skating, eSports, Cubs whatever remember you know i guess you didn't go to the cubs I threw your version of boy scouts, or boy scouts yeah. i mean sh- that's not a movement that's something your parents force you to do <laughs> right it's, it's like this is something that people are, com- are collectively choosing to run away from their home on a wednesday night to go with their friends and have this experience yeah right it's a it's it's, it's such a big part of, of, of manhood for so many places and that idea in london can become less important less connected i mean you've got five clubs for they're always on the top level Um, what is your community and neighborhood in London anymore? Most of your friend group comes from at least three different countries. It's the sort of ultimate beautiful, globalized confusion. But if you're a kid from Dortmund, Mm -hmm. pretty lucky to have Borussia Dortmund. Sure. And the fact that every month a couple different countries are going to come to your town Mm. and you're going to get to go away and see some things. And those are going to form you like nothing else in Dortmund would have because tell you guys if you ever go there on a way day there's not much else going on outside the club
0: but you're 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 an intelligent guy right you think for yourself I... you're an individual yeah a little bit of no blush sure i was trying to make you blush it didn't work <laughs> what i mean right is 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 there not an inherent conflict between and again this is not a criticism at all this is this is uh it's more about preference than than anything else right is there not a conflict between those ideas of uh, sort of thinking for yourself, forget about ultras for now, individual versus the group. I have, I have a fear of groups participating in them, being part of them, being carried away, because I will be carried away. You know, it's, it happens in but, school. It happens all the time. You see group, groups, of, groups of boys, groups of girls, blah, 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 blah. There's, there's one narrative which kind of takes over the thing. Forget about football.
1: How many, how, many, how many supporters ends have you seen in Europe looking at a football game where you only see one banner? And everyone is only under that one group. So, sure. yeah, never. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a sixty banners there. They've all got slightly different colors. Different people have slight different friendships. Then yeah. there's another guy someone with two poles, and then there's another guy with his flag. And maybe so this it's is an what you individual. made you, you can't put one maybe banner over everyone. Maybe it's ever, a small ever, subgroup of people. They'll all gather maybe under a territorial space. Certain groups will have one crazy hegemonic structure, mm. and that's the way it works but it's very rare Mm -hmm. and that definitely doesn't last for over a decade Mm -hmm. like someone will build something new maybe in a different part of the stadium because dangerous with your ideologies to be in that sector yeah but there's always a way to follow your team and not be part of that group you know how many guys i know having grown up a lot of my life in rome who go to lazio's north end and have you know che Guevara in the room and go to feed refugees at a food kitchen on the weekend a lot that it doesn't make them part of the 82 chibri they sit there because they can actively support Mm -hmm. the one or two times every three weeks where something crazy racist will emerge from the stands they'll sit there in silence and tweet about how they wish it didn't happen Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) it's not the most comfortable base to regulate other people in the stands but so, there is room for individual identities in here. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about taking the square, which is the stadium. And, okay, if you want to tie into the big group and that identity, and I see how it can become problematic having a 14-year-old who's a Lazio fan start hanging out and going away with the Uchibli and pretty soon he's reading Mein Kampf. And you're like, what the hell's going on here, right? Um, but to that same extent, that 15-year-old is going on away days with all the Lazio fans. Mm-hmm. And he's learning from all kinds of influences and he's seeing what other fans and other banners are being written and he's going on his own political journey right and if that political journey touches on some very scary sides it's not the fault of ultras that those sides are there Mm -hmm. those sides would be there in political social houses they'd be there in art galleries yeah they'd be there in the theater scene You know, those cities are all; those theories are also in the stand, where no one's going to stand up in theater and monkey chime to black actor. No one is going to, you know, in no one's going to go in parliament and do something as blatantly racist as what you'll see in a stand. Mm -hmm. But the level of dialogue, the level of discourse there, can be just as problematic at times. Right, um, the fact that this individual is choosing to take that oppor- that that journey via football only speaks for the positive because at the end of the day, as much as he wants to push it, his kid one day is going to have a diverse athlete on the back of his shirt, mm-hmm. and like the great equalizer, which is football and sport, <laughs> will show that meritocracy will prevail, and you know. I guess if we're gonna have these problematic beliefs, let's look at the power of football and the athletes and you know, the individual people that we take inspiration from and celebrate as heroes in these stands. And try to drive sort of more of a narrative and connection within that. Mm. that's football's <coughs> role, not to try and babysit these individual spaces which up until now they've starved to death. Right? They've they've taken everything from them and now they're telling them how to behave. Yeah. You, 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 how to behave is on the field how to behave is a collective of 11 diverse people speaking 5 different languages in the modern game trying to achieve one goal altogether. together mm-hmm. that's beautiful but we got the lesson learned we're all watching it Yeah, let's emphasize that lesson yeah. empower the players more to in, invert that lesson back to supporters and recreate that connection rather than turning the players into these millionaire products they can't be touched affected by anything god forbid they Reflect the values that they inherit every day, which is like hard work and Mm open-mindedness.
0: Yeah. Okay, right. I'm going to change the conversation now. We'll talk about the European Super League. Uh, I think I said earlier that we had a video out on Helena Herrera. I think that is next Monday. Uh, Today is a video about the European Super League written by Neil Jensen. Um, And we we had a slightly different take on it. I mean, I think lots of people have, have... written about and made videos about the European Super League already we thought we would ask Neil to look at what were, what were the sort of potential positives of it right i mean the key thrust of his argument is uh, that in any European Super League would need to um to have a promotion relegation um part to it but forget about that for now right because when we talked about it before you had a slightly different opinion on what the positives might be of a European Super League as it relates to the leagues below? Can so, you, how, how does that work? It
1: becomes, a, it becomes a really interesting question. So we look at kind of the Premier League model of football, right? where, again, active fandom has been priced out of the ground largely. Um, be, it'd be very difficult to behave the way European supporters do coming to English stadiums for one away day in the Champions League mm-hmm. and many of them to be kept in English grounds for more than four match days. No one sits. Just drums the whole time. It's more sweary than you'd be allowed to do with the steward normally around you in a Premier League game. It's just a completely different standard of what's considered acceptable. I mean, everyone, smokes in, inside the concourse of the Emirates, you know, in <laughs> Champions League. Um, there's always been this battle between ultras and supporters and UEFA, and now it looks like we're coming to a point in football where. FIFA's interests are to create a global Super League, and UEFA would like to protect its interests of the Champions League. Now, traditionally, football supporters have been against UEFA for the recognition of certain nations within within Champions League football, for repression of standing room, for increase of ticket prices, for mass corruption, for a whole series of things. When we look at how this debate's now going to emerge of do we go with the FIFA system of European Super League or UEFA's Champions League model, I think a lot of fans would traditionally look and say, we need to protect the Champions League model. It protects us having leagues. and Those national leagues are, at the end of the day, the tradition of football that we've always had and what we've kind of built our identities on. Now, I'm starting to kind of build a different perspective, which is that I would like to see a version of... FIFA's Global Super League so long as we are going to live with B-teams you know if Chelsea is going to turn Vitesse into a feeder club Vitesse, uh, Juventus is going to have a B-team that's going to win its division every year um, Barcelona and Real Madrid B-teams that are winning their divisions every year you know Spanish football is sort of infected by it and it's Killing off a lot of the lower teams. I mean, same thing with you know Italy. I mean, you've got a team in Serie C who can't get eight players on the field of pro Piacenza at the weekend. And you've got Juventus fielding B teams. You've got teams like Bari, Avellino, Reggiana who've been in the Serie A all playing in Serie D because they can't survive war making B teams. So I'm of this perspective of okay, let's merge these teams into their super league. Let's let them go do their thing. Let's make it protected so that FIFA's big money sponsors and everyone is going to be around this football. They can do the seating room, and let's let the football fans who want to actively engage in their community and have an impact on their community. Because there's no real message you're going to do about a worker's plight in Turin while playing away in Barcelona. It's not, you know. Thanks for the interesting message in the camp. No, somewhere lost in the bleachers, mm-hmm. but no one's going to read it. No one's going to care. These messages are going to come from local football and the people who are interested in that local football should have their space to sort of create these messages and so maybe, and i'd be curious to hear what you think and this is also contingent on so many other different scenarios which i'm sure you talk about in the video of what could happen it's in our best interest to see a european a global super league where you know boca real madrid i mean real madrid and barcelona their fans are basically paid for anyways half of them you know Barcelona maybe has still has a small group that lives in the stadium but most of them are banned um, Manchester United Liverpool Chelsea Arsenal fine Milan and Juventus or Inter and Juventus or who knows which Italian ones but you know there's clubs that are realistically as Copa 90 now we're, we're talking to clubs and they're saying we we need to build enough of a media reputation to get into these European Super Leagues or these global Super Leagues so clubs are Looking at it not as a possibility but as a very practical reality of of how do you get in and, and what's that going to look like when we think about the interest of fans and and, and, the, and the future of people who go and support active football and, and and see it as this extension of their community and this extension of their identity, maybe our best bet is letting the football which has become more of a pop culture form of feeling like you're globally in something vogue. Everyone on FIFA plays the video game plays for four or five teams in comparison with going to the ground, writing your messages, the beautiful displays, all of the cultural things that emerge out of football, which are so special. The other side of me is horrified at that idea because you can sort of check out a video we'll link in. I was just at PSG away to Manchester United last weekend. PSG supporters were incredible. They've gone from a story where they were banned from the stadium after supporters' violence in 2010 and 2016. Uh, they had a plan of Paul, which kicked everyone out of the ground, and they were able to re-emerge into the ground in 2016, because for five years they followed their women's team. And that, following the women's team and the new ownership coming in, built them the legitimacy to, they go to Liverpool, best supporters who ever came to England. They go to they go to Manchester, best supporters who ever came to England. And it's a supporters group who's reemerged from a club who, from the 70s until 10 years ago, won hardly anything, mm-hmm. who always had a great reputation for support. They were kicked out. They found a way to re empower themselves. And now they're the talking point of European football. I mean, besides one complaint of the Manchester Evening News that they ripped out 800 seats. But, <laughs> I mean, in England, if you're going to buy the flimsiest seats ever and the next ever <laughs> want to stand on them on a the European away day, you're going to lose 800 seats. <laughs>
0: Okay, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. As as we said, I mean, the video says, you know, there's a promotion relegation system. It strengthens the leagues beneath. I mean, I take the point about the B teams. I think that's very important. That's a kind of that's a crucial topic of discussion. If it is going to happen, it sounds like at some point it probably will, right? I mean, the I suppose the the problem at the moment, and we've talked about this in various videos as well, is that is that FIFA's what 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 sort of allegedly appears to be fifa's kind of preliminary planning for this sort of stuff is tied up in various commercial deals with with various regions of the world which may sort of complicate that message yeah, a little bit more look,
1: the cat's out the bag on fair sporting terms I mean Jules Rimet would look back at football in his modern era and he'd freak out he'd vomit <laughs> all over his tooth right like <laughs> you've got Red Bull playing Red Bull in the Champions League and even though there's every rule against it FIFA makes an exception and UEFA make an exception You've got the city groups who can own a team in every single country, have a different logo for them, and it's not an issue, and they basically become feeders for each other. You've got Chelsea with over like, 120 players playing in Belgium. They basically own the Belgian league yeah. by a one Russian oligarch who's moved to England, who might, for political reasons, get kicked out. And if he does kicked out, what happens to the destinies of all these players? Mm-hmm. Like, where's the FPA on like? What do you do if, you know, this, like, billionaire guy who's dancing on kind of shady political terms can't be there anymore? Mm-hmm. There's there's so <laughs> many things that you're, like, from Olympic values of, like, what sport is just meant to be, mm-hmm. which at this point, like, they've totally fucked it off. Like, they just absolutely don't care. They've blown it out of the water to where it's, like, okay, then, like, this, this system is so corrupt. Like, this system is so... Marcho, as we say in the league. rotten,
0: right? It's like it's really pretty rotten. Pretty obviously now as well. Pretty, like,
1: pretty completely blatantly. I mean, yeah. to, the, to the point where we have discussions about European super leagues, everyone says, no, you're conspiracy theorists. Then a kid from Portugal leaks it, and then UEFA's putting out, like, hitmen to track down a 20-year-old Portuguese kid who looks like, I mean, he looks like the salt of the earth. He looks like his grandma just brought him cookies, poor guy. What,
0: what is that?
1: The, the, Joao Pinto, Raul Rui Pinto, right. the, kid, the Portuguese yeah, football yeah, what, leaks leaker. But
0: what's the thing, what's the thing Wait, about the, the hitmen?
1: The, the, there's every piece of the Portuguese government and UEFA money trying to track him down putting him right. in jail for being a whistleblower.
0: Right. For I was, things just, that I was now, just putting you down for, for things things that, that, saying
1: hitmen for, for things that no hitmen they're gonna
0: kill him let's just clarify full, in, case, in case people it, take it, that it seriously there's like
1: reputational hitmen right like, sure. they're, 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 this level of campaign this level of thing it's just like what are we talking about here like mm. you're the foundation teaching us like not to be racist towards youth footballers and to like empower kids with one leg to learn how to play sport and to give women an equal role in sports and then like the president, the level of yeah, what like the level of you'll take money. For, you can and you can see it and, around the, the, the Qatar what? World General Cup. I think
0: at the moment you can see it so so strongly around the Qatar World Cup. It's uh, with the sort of expansion, you know, potential expansion. Plans, oh well, it's... because I
1: mean the Qatar World Cup has just shown how belligerent it is, and has has even more served to reinforce and justify fans. Mm.
0: You
1: know, you what, we're we're the ones who are out of control.
0: So this is something positive to end on, though, right? Because it's it's all very depressing. But the positive thing that you just said there is that this this serves to, in theory, reinforce fan movements to kind of, well, of re it, re energize people. But t- tell me something positive for us to finish. I on. mean, I
1: think that that's I think that that is really the inevitable truth of all of this. Is we've all woken up to the football leagues, the FIFA scandals, the mass arrest, mm-hmm. the sex files. I mean. Mm-hmm. Crazy extradition charges, bladder kicked out of football, Platini kicked out of football. The controversy of Russia, the controversy of the World Cup in Qatar, the nu- the, the the rockets donated to Saudi Arabia for Germany to get a World Cup. You know the the IMF loans to uh, to South Africa for their World Cup, Brazil, and basically the destruction of that country over the construction. Of the- like we've seen the level of sort of endemic problems that's in football. It's been relentless over the last ten years. Football supporters and active ultras have been complaining about these habits for 20. Mm-hmm. They've been blowing the whistle on this actively for years and years and years, trying to create some change. In that time, we've seen the powers of BF football disempower. A lot of the times, football fans have not done themselves any favors um, because society doesn't do itself any favors a lot of the time. But when you're looking for... Point of sort of righteousness in football. Lo and behold, the people who've been there the whole time, the people who've been actively at their clubs, five, six days a week, painting the flags, going to the players' practices, asking the managers and the others what's up, reading every article in the newspaper, staying so attached to the club, turning their club into a lifestyle, which basically is what the ultra scene is, they had their finger on the nose. They knew what was going on. They were well aware of it. They saw it in how they were getting banned from certain games, from certain behaviors. They saw it how certain rules were being changed to make their life more and more difficult. They saw how the commercialization of football came over the interests of whatever was happening with them. And they saw where football was going. And now the rest of us are seeing it going, why are the ultras so dangerous? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's been problems, but thousands of people are being killed. Constructing World Cups, yeah, billions of dollars has been stolen from people all over the world. You know, fines have been going to clubs who can't even open up their away sections for misdemeanors that wafer regulations. No, won't be sustainable because they want to see clubs from lesser powered countries get kicked out of these competitions because it doesn't protect their financial interest and putting. Financial interest at the behest of sporting good when you're the moral organization that's supposed to arbit good and bad meritocratic sporting practices. And it, it's, it's gone completely nuts. And football fans and ultras, they've been the first ones to stand up against that. And the same way they've been active within the politics of their countries, the same way they've been active within after natural disasters within their local territories and the first responders to clean things up. They've been the first ones who've been active in this massive fight against the modernization of football and the corruption of FIFA and UEFA. And for all the negative sides, you know, for the instances of violence, for a tariff outside the ground, being an active member of your community, being a first responder after a national disaster, and being the first to call out UEFA and FIFA over extremely negative practices, and those three things being ignored about you and the violence becoming the main feature of you, well, that's fascinating to me. I'm, my goal is to
0: turn that around. Thank you very much, Martina. I really you. appreciate it. If if people want to go and watch, you know, more of your work specifically, how do they do? They just go to the Copper 90 YouTube channel. Copper the... 90
1: YouTube channel. Um, I'll throw up a bunch of my links yeah we can put the videos them in that i've personally done in yeah. the description or something
0: yeah okay cool hey thanks very much man i really appreciate always, you coming always. in
1: looking forward to doing more stuff with people in the future i don't yeah. know what it's gonna be but stay tuned. <laughs> we'll have you
0: back <laughs>
1: okay